This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 12, Episode 43. This is Writing Excuses, serialized storytelling. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Piper. I'm Dan. I'm Howard. I'm Brandon. I'm Piper again. I'm not Dan anymore. I died <laughs> in the last episode. <laughs> we were talking about sequels. Last so. week on Writing Excuses. <laughs> I'm also PJ. What? Um, so I really wanted to do an episode this season focused on the way that Howard tells stories. Because a lot of the way that we talk about novels and things you mean poorly. Snap! Dang! <laughs> Sorry. Oh, the lift no, is coming no, out. I, I, it's late, I, and I, I couldn't. earned that with a uh, a slam on Dan back in season eleven. Okay. So. <laughs> um, I want to talk about writing a long epic that is serialized, not just you right. know. Yeah, you've been writing Schluck Mercenary for twelve years, sixteen, 16 years, um, and it's primarily the same characters. So let me ask the first question is, how do you increment character progression as like little packages over a long time so that the reader doesn't get tired of the character always having an arc or things like this? Um, well, for starters, let me say that I don't like when a television program, and it, it's typically television program, will break a relationship or break a character in order for that person to again have an arc. And the reason they do it on TV is that you paid for an actor. You have a lead. That person is making more money than the other people on the screen. You know, they are the, they are the tent pole, if you will. When you are writing a novel, when you are writing a series of novels, when you are writing a series of graphic novels or audio plays or whatever, you aren't hiring actors. You can have characters who were the tent pole in book one but who are stepping into the background a little bit in in the next story. And by far the easiest way to have an interesting character arc in each story is for it to not always happen to the same people. Uh, and I do that with Schlock Mercenary pretty regularly. I will ask myself, okay, whose who's story do I want to focus on? Now, who are the people who are key players in the Schlock Mercenary universe, and how will they impact that story arc. That's actually how, I mean, people love Sergeant Schlock, but he, one, he rarely gets an actual arc. Right. Um, but he's always there to cause problems with other people's story arcs. <laughs> yes. I really love how you do this. I think um, particularly the later five seasons of Schlock Mercenary can be a guidebook on how to keep a story feeling fresh Oh, you're um, very kind. Thank you. <laughs> and um, the ways you constantly reinvent your cast is is exceptional. One of my uh, one of my neighbors, um, uh, one of my son's friends, mm -hmm. is a schlock mercenary fan, uh, which always makes him a little uncomfortable when he wants to come over and land game. And I'm drawing stuff that he doesn't get to read yet. Uh, but he asked me. Uh, this was back in October of 2016. He said, uh, "How come?" How come Sergeant Schluck has to have an identity crisis? <laughs> uh, because I had never done that to that character before. And I said, well, um, because it's about time that I explored his identity a little bit. 
um, you know, it's yeah. his turn. Right, right. It, it's his turn. And when I finished I mean, it. The, the strip's only named after him. You think exactly. eventually there might be a story. When I finished it, and this was actually the hard part, is that he's what we call an iconic hero as opposed to an epic hero. I got this terminology from Jim Zub. Uh, epic heroes, um, you, you know, your epic fantasy heroes, Kvothe. Is, yes. is probably, you know, one of the biggest examples that you can come up with lately. Conan the Barbarian is an iconic hero. Right. He doesn't get character development. You can tell a zillion stories about him, but he hasn't changed. Schlock is an iconic hero, not an epic hero. But I gave him a little bit of character arc. And so the difficult thing for me was, in this next installment, how have I changed him so that he still feels iconic, but I didn't invalidate that stuff that happened before. Um, for me, that's the biggest challenge. Uh, I could just talk and talk and talk. Right. And well, talk let's about let's this, pitch this yeah. at Piper because in romance, we've talked about this idea that in romance, often your sequels yes. um, are something where you have one character in the first uh, uh, book of the series and introduce a side cast, and then later books. We'll take one of them and make them a main protagonist and give them a romance. And you just kind of get to go through the cast. Yes. And actually, that's an interesting topic amongst romance writers because um, that first paradigm where every book in the series is a different um, set of here uh, of love interest. So they're different mm -hmm. people who are falling in love and you get to read their love story. Um, a person who does that really, really well is Nalini Singh. She's a New Zealand author. Okay. Um, her side changeling series was was my oh, it was my drug of choice for a very, very long time, and it still is. Every time she has a new release, she's on like twelve books now. Um, how does she keep it fresh from just feeling like it's, like how does? It, yeah. And that's the thing, right? So uh, it starts out with a leopard changeling pack. So these are shapeshifters. Mm -hmm. um, and you have your main alpha of the pack that she starts with. And then each of the following stories um, either touches on one of the sentinels that supports the main alpha and who he falls in love with. But across the entire series, there's this political paradigm or struggle between changelings, um, the psi, who are predominantly psychic powered, emotionless people and humans who feel but aren't as strong as either of the other two races. And um, they're different combinations of, okay. of, of love triangles from that. And then she re-engineers it. Every couple of stories, you get someone that you absolutely didn't expect, not in the supporting pack, maybe not any of the supporting characters, but who comes in and falls in love with maybe somebody that's related to the previous other characters. Um, so it stays fresh because you have this ongoing struggle between the races and how are they all going to survive and things are going to, could destroy the world. Um, or you've also got these relationships with different people coming in and every single one of them has their own issue that they have to resolve as a person of their own individuality. Okay. And then they're also trying to resolve this relationship that is seemingly impossible. So it lets you build like themes through the whole series, but attack the same idea from different personalities and different uh, different combinations of romantic heroes. I really that's it's very interesting exactly. how it keeps it fresh. Yeah, if you if you pull back a little bit, um, and I think it was I think it was Stephen Barnes, and I'm going to paraphrase this badly um, mm -hmm. when we had him on the show in uh, sixteen, who said, uh, "Really, all fiction is just saying, you know, uh, what what is it to be human? 
And I can't remember the other part of the question, but that that whole that central question of the human condition, uh, if you are asking, what does it mean to be in love? Mm-hmm. And if that is the question you are asking, and then you answer it differently through the through a set of characters who we have met. We met all of them, or most of them, in the first book, but each of them answers the question separately throughout the series. That's going to be really satisfying, and that can be—I uh, mean, just what I've described right there—that might be enough framework for right. a good romance author to write a dozen books. Absolutely. I can't write a dozen books out of it because I'm not a romance <laughs> author. But so, now, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Lisa Clayposs is another romance author who I love, who kept her Wallflower series fresh, and it was a series of four books across the seasons, and the story was she introduced the concept as it being four women who were wallflowers being introduced for their season. And basically it's historical romance, and you get to see the adventures and shenanigans of each of these young ladies. They've made a pact with each other that they would find each, they would help each other find husbands. And shenanigans ensue mm-hmm. within the historical romance. But that is a set number of books that you expect in the series because there's a set number of young ladies in the wallflowers. You've got, you're promised, and, and this, is, this is something that's critical, I think, to a series, but you are promised at the beginning of the first book, just through the title of things and the introduction of the cast, we are going to get to follow each of these people. Exactly. And during the first book, so. you've made each of them interesting enough that I want to pick up the second book. What, I, the answer what that. I love That's about, about each of this is, those. again, we're talking about structure this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is structure that... A very simple structure. We have eight people, eight books, but allows when structure allows the reader to anticipate some things and you to build upon what the reader is anticipating. Um, it allows, it gives you more of a framework for telling your story and it allows you to manage expectations in really interesting ways. And this is why I love structure. Even though, you know, you talk about structure, writers are like, oh, I just want to be free and creative. Yes, we all want to be free and creative, but the structure can work really well for helping you tell the story you want to tell. So. Yeah. Now, I, I want to uh, to look at something else because a lot of what we've talked about so far is, you know, keeping the serialized story fresh by changing the, the character focus, which you don't have to do. And I want to be clear on that. And look at the way most television series works. Look at mm-hmm. an hour-long TV drama. Um, yes, you know, the cast of ER changed occasionally, but some of those characters hung around for 10 or 12 years. Um, one of the, I, I recently started working as a staff writer on a TV show, and that was one of the first things they explained to us, and I thought this was really pithy, that in a novel or in a movie, you were looking at how characters change. In a TV episode, you're looking at how characters react to things. Mm. And that, that allows you to have the same character over and over for 10 years every week but still keep it fresh because they're reacting to something specific. Yes. And one of the things I love is to look at an ensemble show. The one that comes to mind is actually Community, um, where they got endless amounts of variation just by combining characters in different sets. This week, you know, this character and a different character are going to work together on some kind of shenanigan, and they have a different dynamic than the person he worked with last week. Yeah, That is it, really good I, advice. I, yeah. I, didn't mean to sound like I was dissing TV writing. I was dissing a style <laughs> oh, of TV yeah. writing. Yeah. I, I wasn't. Yeah. Oh, I know, I know, I know. I, a good example of TV writing where, uh, and it's an iconic character, mm-hmm. uh, Elementary. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the, American, the American Sherlock Holmes, um, 
there is a very slow character progression for Sherlock Holmes in which by season four, he is engaging with people in different ways than he did early on. These are Mm -hmm. still police procedurals, you know, in the classic sense. Um, But now Sherlock Holmes is slightly different and sitting down. So you're just saying increment that really slowly. It has been incremented. Yes. Yeah. We see how he reacts and every so often his reaction changes just a little. And I've I've recently been watching them in a hurry. Now one more. Wait, I'm going to cut. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For the book of the week. Cut for the book of the uh, week. Dan, you have the book of the week this yes, week. Yes, and the book of the week is actually not serialized. Sorry about that. But uh, it is a really great one that I recently read called Every Heart a Doorway by Seanan McGuire. And this is a book that takes place in what is essentially a boarding school for children who have been through a portal fantasy, you know, <laughs> like they've just gone off and they spent a, an artificial lifetime in Narnia and then they come back and their parents don't believe them and everyone thinks they're crazy except for this nice lady who runs the boarding school and says to the parents, yes, they're crazy, but I can help them. And then as soon as the kid shows up at school, she says, I know you're not crazy. It happened to me too. We're all the same here. I can help you deal with it. That is such a brilliant concept. Brilliant concept. It is such a beautiful book as well because she expands that then into a metaphor of what is it like to live something that is true for you and and the people around you don't believe it, which applies to so much. Is just amazing. She really is. Um, And you guys haven't read her books, you are missing out. And this one is fantastic and very short, so you can read it quick. In terms of serialization... Wait, wait, wait. I oh, cut sorry. off Piper. Sorry, sorry. I'm going to let her go. <laughs> I'm sorry. My turn, my turn. No, um, I wanted to spin off of what Dan had mentioned when it's, you know, you don't always have to keep it fresh by switching the characters. Uh, Patricia Briggs does an excellent job of this with the Mercy Thompson series and also um, the Anna and Charles series um, or Alpha and Omega series because they're the same characters and the main, same main cast throughout each and every book. Um, and what keeps it fresh is the different kinds of challenges. They don't necessarily ramp up. They're not necessarily more and more dangerous, but they're different flavors of challenges. So the first book, Moon Called, you know, there's, there are challenges within the pack, werewolves. Um, but you know and you've learned from the first book that there are vampires in this world. There are fae in this world. The second book, you have more of them dealing with vampires. The third book, you have Mercy dealing with the fae. Um, and it breaks your heart, that book. And then the fourth book, you get into some of the more Native American mythology and folklore. So every book becomes a different level of challenge, not only for Mercy herself as the central character, but the other characters around her and how they view the world and how they also have decided to interact with the world. And that kind of evolves through the series. So that <laughs> the character has flavor longer. of that is uh, Mary Robinette Kowal's. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, the Glamorous Histories. Glamorous yeah, Histories. I, I couldn't think of the name of the series. Um, she also doesn't like programs in which you break the relationship in order to have a story about building the relationship. And so each book has a different type of 
relationship challenge for this couple uh, who remains happily together. Uh, yeah. And as somebody who's been happily married for 20 plus years myself, that really resonates with me. You know, a love story where you are more in love and more deeply in love at the end of the story without having had your love actually broken is kind of wonderful. Yeah. You know, I hear she's really sharp. We should get her on the podcast sometime. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> all right, all right. Um, last question on this topic, um, power creep. I wanted to pitch one that at least I had something <laughs> I could talk about um, because one worry that I have for big series and series I've read is that the characters overcome so much, gain so much knowledge, new abilities, um, you know, conquests, whatever, that by the end of the series, they are just not interesting because they're too powerful. That's one worry I have. Um, I think authors handle it very well, some of them, but what, what, what advice do you have on that? Like, how do you keep, for instance, John Cleaver? He's not powerful in the same way, but he's mm -hmm. increasingly... He is increasingly yeah. emotionally stable. Yes. That's the power creep that I have mm -hmm. to deal with because over the course of six books, he becomes much better at not being the character he was in the beginning, which is the book most people have read and love. And it was very hard to continue to find ways to hurt him and ways that he could be emotionally stunted despite all the growth that he's been through. And the way to do that was to keep finding different problems for him to deal with. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, the first trilogy is John learns how to love. Uh, and that feels like a great victory at the end. Yay! But loving things is hard. You know, having a heart sucks when it breaks. And so just giving him a different flavor of emotional problem to run up against that his all his newfound powers actually may have caused um, helps keep that power creep down. In 2009, Brandon and I were on elliptical machines at Gold's Gym, where Brandon said he was talking about titling episodes in Writing Excuses, and the model that he was using was the design space model used by Magic the Gathering, yep. where they were trying to not overpower the cards, and they were trying to make sure that the names of the cards made sense for what they did. That concept of design space, that concept of, for instance, uh, you know, we have a tree with leaf nodes at the end of the tree, and you don't want the tree to be lopsided. You don't want any leaf, any particular leaf to be too big as you are building your series. The sorts of problems that are overcome, the sorts of character growth that happens, the sort of powers that are developed need to fit within a design space that yeah. is consistent for your series. No, that's a great way to apply that. I hadn't even thought of it, but really what you want to do, there's a difference between saying, I am going to save this for the sequel, which is always a dangerous phrase to say because mm -hmm. the danger of that is you leave every, you leave, you leave the first the book stuff. bland. Yeah. Yeah. But there's, there's a line there where you say our design space, our space for this book to cover cool things is limited. And if I can pick one or two things and cover them really well, I will have a better first book, a better second book, and a better third book by dividing and then conquering. Yeah, well, and a big part of that design space concept, you know, especially as it relates to Magic the Gathering, was, hey, we've got this new idea. Let's not blow it all on one set of cards. Yes. You know, let's take this new mechanic that we've thought of and examine little pieces of it as detailed as we can rather than just, okay, we're done. 
And you can do that with characterization as well. Yeah. If you take the specific, uh, the, the heroic monomyth, the moment of apotheosis yeah. really kind of ends, th that's the top of the power curve story. If your design space includes apotheosis and stuff that happens after it, what you are saying is apotheosis has to happen more than once which probably means it has to happen to more than one person, which probably means I'm writing a, an epic about the creation of multiple gods. And I mean, that's the way you ask the question and come up with an answer that allows you to do that cool thing in book one and still have book two. Now, Power Creep does translate to romances in the fact that you could end up with the perfect romance. And that's not actually emotionally satisfying at the end. You kind of want... And, and I've seen that happen where either one or the other character is completely and totally resolved and has Zen in and of themselves. And therefore, why do they need that romance? Like, why mm. do they need that love? And so the ending doesn't feel like it quite fits. Like, I'm not buying it. Why does, she, why does that person need them? And oh, why did the big wow. confession happen? Um, so you don't actually want your individuals, while they do resolve their issues and they are strong in and of themselves, they still need that relationship to be whole and more than they would have been by themselves. Wow, that's that's some really good advice. So that's like, yeah. you got to watch Power Hyper. Creep in a relationship. Yeah. We're so glad you're here on this show. <laughs> <laughs> Except Man. that you keep making us look dumb in comparison. No! Season 12, in which Piper teaches us how to love. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Step we can... one, embrace the warm and fuzzy. Yeah. <laughs> do you need me to do homework, Brandon? I need you to do homework. Okay. Um, I've talked about beat charts before. Um you know, where you, you write down the iconic moments, the character arcs, whatever, for your story. Um, build a beat chart for a series. Identify iconic, heroic moments in which, you know, the hero does something awesome and put each one down on an index card. Identify character arcs, you know, <laughs> learns to love, um, has a descent into madness. Put those down on cards. Um, identify what the reveals are, and then take this stack of cards and spread them out into multiple stories and order yourself a series in which everything gets to happen, but it doesn't all happen at once. Excellent. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production. Jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like 
Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 